Yes, of course I'm a fan. I'm a, I'm, I've been a fan since 1970. Don't tell me I haven't even started season two yet. Oh, hi, it's uh, Pete Pomisano. And welcome to another edition of Road Less Traveled's Off-Road. With me, Pete Pomisano. It's one week before Christmas, and... Well, actually, if you're hearing this, it's probably only a few days before Christmas, and it's it's very exciting. And I have to tell you, if you haven't purchased all of your gifts yet and you need something special for a special person in your life, Road Less Traveled Productions has something for you. Just go to roadlesstraveledproductions.org and click on Merchandise. And on Merchandise, you can get all sorts of Road Less Traveled stuff. You, you can even get... A mug for Off-Road, the RLTP podcast. That's right, RLTP podcast, or or a sweatshirt, a hoodie. And, you know, I begged them to put my face on there, but for some reason, they wouldn't. They, they said something about, well, when we get a real host, we might have to switch the faces, but that's another story. So go to roadlesstraveledproductions.org, click on merchandise, and look at all the cool roadless traveled stuff you can get to buy for your friends or your loved ones and actually help out the theater at the same time. End of commercial. So yeah, it's exciting. It's very exciting to stay home all by yourself, to not be with your family, to not be with your daughter, your grandchildren. It's very exciting. <sighs> okay, maybe exciting is not exactly the right word for it, but it's, it's got my dander up. So how are you guys all doing? Oh, man, is this an exciting episode. Have I used the word exciting too much this time? I think so. But it's a terrifically exciting episode because we have Joanne Folletta. Oh, what a lovely, wonderful lady she is. Joanne Folletta, the music director of the Buffalo Philharmonic Orchestra, is here. She's talking to me. Is there anybody more important in the city, anybody, any ambassador to the city who's more visible and, and more valuable than Joanne Folletta? I don't know. I don't think so. Am I being too much of a fanboy? Boy, I had to really hold it back when I was talking to her. It was tough. So that's part of this very special Christmas holiday episode of Off-Road. But we also have another mystery guest to answer a single question in my one-question quickie. And we also have, well, as a matter of fact, I think we'll start off with it. We have Mr. Anthony Alcaser, who's going to talk to us about a very special takeout place. And I'll tell you more about it after we're finished. And Tony wants us to know something very special about this particular place, and he'll tell you all about it. And I want to apologize up front for the sound quality, because when I was talking to Tony, we were getting a lot of interference, a lot of crackling noises. And please, I apologize, put up with it, but I didn't want to redo the whole interview because it was such a good one. So please, just bear with me, bear with us, as we listen to Tony Elkisser here on Off-Road. So tell me the restaurant you want to talk about, my friend. So I have one main restaurant I want to talk about today. And so I want to talk about the Roycroft, the Roycroft Inn down in East Aurora. I can glean a few things from the website, but the Roycroft means so much to us. I found out so much about what they are doing now, including like a sweet special where they drop the rate of a room 
as long as you agree to order dinner service. I think the rooms regularly were like 165. They said 100 flat, just order dinner on each night and we'll full menu, full bar. We'll drop it off, you know, in the hallway. Let us know when you're done with it. I mean, they're trying to stay in business too. They've had to let go a lot of their staff. They don't do service on Sundays and Mondays because of the costs. They're doing to go. I also wanted to talk about what it was like when you could go there because it'll come back again and a lot of the fantastic things, the rich history, you can't go into the chapel right now, but I know that they have one of the other things I wrote it down um, along the, the campus, the history, and to highlight about how getting the local quarrymen to pack the very rocks in the side of the hill to help build the pathways, that idea of like coming together as a community, you can go there wearing your mask, but you can still like hang out in the sweet foyer at a distance and enjoy your steaks. It's quieter there now. Just if, if that type of luxury is up your alley, if not, they're doing to go. And I could get there in like, when I used to live in South Buffalo, I got there in like 15 minutes. But they are doing takeout is what, is what you're telling me there. Oh yeah. And it's their, their full menu and everything, as far as you know? Yeah, they have a special menu. You can go on the website. Oh, I never thought of that, of course. So if you go onto their website, you can see how they have a menu that runs from 12 to 7. And you can get, you know, all these items, doesn't matter what time of day. You can order online via credit card. Um, you can call ahead. And you can pay cash at the at the to-go exchange. They, they'll work it out for you. You can use a gift card if you're holding on to a gift card that you haven't been able to use. Mm -hmm. But I did want to mention something, if it's cool with you. Sure. One of the options they have on their website, if you go to roycroftin.com, I think it's a .com. Yeah. And then you go to their dining it's, it's very special what I read, and then I called ahead to ask permission if I could mention it. It's right on the homepage, idiot. You just got to scroll down. It says order online here. Okay, here's what it is, Peter. It says feed a neighbor program, an option to purchase a meal for a neighbor in need on our online ordering system above. Donate family-style meals to be delivered through Rural Outreach Center. Well, I called the Rural Outreach Center. Yeah. And I spoke with their program director. This is what I found out. Roycroft Inn reached out to this nonprofit. The ROC is a collective of compassionate social workers that offer care coordination. They're not a simple charity. They don't say line up and, 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 and take this. What they do is they use the donations that they receive to program through empowerment. They serve a thousand people a year in five rural counties surrounding Buffalo area. And they're trying to break the cycle of rural poverty. Their programs are just mind blowing. While they're always looking for fiscal support, they do have these a limited volunteer program right now because of stupid COVID. But if you call and, and speak with their program director or an associate, you'll find out things that they do through their donations. And so I, am, I would like to encourage everybody to get a great meal, support the Roycroft in a very special place that is supporting the rural outreach center that's based out of East Aurora. They do things like play therapy, Peter. So they take children from, from 20 months old up into their adolescent years, 
So they're looking to enrich the lives of children and communities who are suffering in poverty. And I really think it's a fantastic program. I encourage everybody to go take a look at it, theroc.co. And there's ways to get involved donating fiscally. They need support like a lot of, of these programs. But if you decide to take a look at ordering to go from Roycroft, there is an option for somebody to have a meal on you. And in this time of year, for people in need, I think it's a great program. Oh, that's fantastic. It's right on the homepage near near the bottom, or not near the bottom, but you have to scroll down to get to it. Yeah, because I mean, I'm looking for something for, uh, you know, a charitable thing this Christmas to be able to do that so conveniently through the Roycroft. Tell me again, the name of the programs, ROC, was it? Yeah, the Rural Outreach Center. Rural Outreach Center, yes. Yeah, and their website is T-H-E-R-O-C.C-O. Okay. And after speaking with their program director, it really is a hopeful story of empowering, breaking a cycle, changing lives, not simply by saying, um, everybody just sign up here and show up here. It's programming. It's outreach. It's work. Counseling coordinating, um, you're talking about people in social work, breaking that cycle of poverty, helping people get to self-sufficiency. And I am a huge proponent of that. And I'd like to champion that, um, if I may. And that's great. Why don't you have a great meal? And you're supporting the Roycroft at the same time. Yep, it's a yeah. Yeah, so you're you're helping them because you're buying the food from them, you're buying the meals from them, but it's going to the rural out, rural outreach rural outreach center. That, center. There's a new uh, warm up for you, Peter. When we, <laughs> I know how much you appreciate a good oh yeah acting exercise together. I'm all <laughs> I'm all about that. I am all about. <laughs> The warm up yeah. and the and and if possible, let's play some games uh, because yeah, let's let's. <laughs> I am all about it. Let's make a game out of out of our work. Uh, I know that you're a, a big fan of that. To to just go back to what the Roy Croft is up to, they're not having indoor dining right now. There is uh for their to go. Just so you know, they're using paper biodegradable containers. That's another. That's a question I was going to ask because a lot of places are still using styrofoam and that's, uh, you know, that's problematic, obviously. Um, I won't not go to a place, but whenever I get the styrofoam, I think, oh, shoot. You know, I mean, at least even if it was plastic, it's recyclable, but the paper biodegradable is even better. That cardboardy stuff, I know exactly what you mean. It sounds like they're doing everything right out there. They're doing everything right, but but even like, uh, you know, People may think, you know, Roycroft, expensive, special occasions. I consider the idea, take them up on the offer if you need to celebrate and you're thinking outside the box for Christmas this year. In the end, they're like, here's an experience for you that we're making safe as possible. Stay the night, get the meal, lowering the price. Well, that's all great stuff, Tony. Yeah, their takeout menu. The, the food that we had for the for the dinner, for the for the um for the wedding was delicious the sunday brunch it's so good and i'm looking at some of the menu items and they're doing things that sound a little fancy but they also have you know rubens burgers 
paninis. Oh, cool. And lots of vegan, vegan options as well. The, the food is delicious. And I'm really looking forward to being able to get back there, order on up, yeah. order on up, take the drive, enjoy a little bit of that country. Well, great. Tony, you've taken this to another level, far beyond what I was searching for and just in terms of takeout. But, you know, you're killing two birds with one stone there. You're patronizing them. You're helping out the ROC there. And great food. I remember it being great food. Yeah, give them, give them credit for thinking of the idea to collaborate. I just stumbled upon it. Best wishes for a happy holiday season. And I hope to see you soon, my friend. You as well. You as well. It was great talking to you. My best to everybody. Thank you, Peter. It's a real pleasure. Stay safe, everyone. So long, Tony. Take care. So there you have it, the uh, Roycroft Inn in East Aurora. Now, I know you're thinking that's a long way to go for a takeout, but you know what? This holiday season, over the next few weeks, don't think about yourself. Forget about your takeout. Instead, just go on their website. Now, I did this the other day to make sure it was easy to do. You just go on their website, theroycroftin.com, and you go to order. And when you go to put your order in, the first thing that comes up is the, you know, Feed a Neighbor Rural Outreach Program. And for 20 bucks, you can, you know, buy a meal for somebody. What a great way to spend a few bucks and feel good about yourself because you helped somebody else this holiday season. And in 2020, oh dear God, don't we all need a little help and some more than others. And some of us can help more than others. So let's do it. Roycroftin.com and the Feed a Neighbor program through the Rural Outreach Center. It's right there on their website. It's the first thing you come to. And when you go to order, that's what you click on, Feed a Neighbor. And as is my habit, I also want to plug another Hamburg, Blaisdell, Lackawanna restaurant, a, a lovely place that used to be called Armando's, those of you who remember it, right out there on Route 5. It's now called the Rust Belt Bar and Grill. And it's owned by a lovely Greek couple, and the food is great. The prices are ridiculously low. They'll bring your food out to your car. Go to Rust Belt uh, on Facebook. They have their own Facebook page and see their menu. Everything is delicious. They have specials every couple of days. Sometimes they have $10 entrees, $20 entrees. It's crazy. They have scallop dishes. They have blackened tuna. They have chicken dishes. They have pasta dishes. They, and if you really want to drive yourself nuts, get yourself some of that dark chocolate, salted caramel, Oreo-crusted pie. Oh, my God. And the amount of food you get is, is just amazing, considering the prices they charge. So check out Rust Belt Bar & Grill, located in uh, Blaisdell, on Route 5. It would take you about uh, 15 minutes to get there from downtown Buffalo. And you know what? Let's, let's slip in our mystery guest this week. One of my favorite people, none other than Mr. Greg Natale. And look at that. His name in Italian actually means Christmas. So it's, it's like an endless circle. Greg, let's, let's ask you right out front and, and you tell me what you think. Who is the most inspirational person in your life? Who's the person who probably meant the most to your career? The most inspirational is, is an acting teacher I had in New York. He's, uh, his name is Greg Zittle. 
I had gotten to New York and was starting to audit acting classes because I left Buffalo after a couple of years of getting out of UB's theater program and felt like mm -hmm. I needed to learn more. So I wasn't liking any of the acting teachers I was seeing, a lot of God complex, you know, going on when I'd watch these, um, these people teach their classes. And uh, Jim Moore, another actor from Buffalo, much older than me at the time, had, had gone to New York before me. And I went to see him in a play when I got there. I was like, Jim, your acting has changed completely. Uh, you know, you're, you're much deeper. You're much, you're not like pretending. I don't see you pretending as much. I feel you much more authentic. And he goes, I got a teacher for you, kid. This guy would not let us audit his classes. And I understood later on why but I had to do an interview instead. So I went over to his house in Chinatown and walked upstairs and sat there and talked to him for an hour and a half with his wife, who also uh, taught once in a while with him. And like by nine o'clock in the evening, I got a phone call and I said, yeah, we both like you, you're in. And so I, I had to catch up. I was like a month behind a regular class. I worked with his wife, with another uh, actress who was catching up. And then we got to join the class. The, the method that Greg taught was is called Meisner's technique, which is very common now. It was less known back in the you know mid '80s, early '80s, and it's a very systematic way of working. But this gentleman could—you you felt like he could read your mind um, at any moment in your life. And uh, he, you know, what he was was he was so well trained in the technique himself, which is all about listening and all about taking in the other person and working off of their behaviors to allow you to work off of your behaviors. And then it kind of becomes this, you know, natural, non-acty looking, you know, work, mm -hmm. uh, which is what I was wanting to do when I got out of UB. So that was a two-year program. And we had to make a commitment to do no outside acting work while we were training because he didn't want us to, like, bring in bad habits from theater directors or, you know, even television commercial directors, you needed to make a commitment for two years to only study. And he was out of the neighborhood playhouse where Sanford Meisner had worked for decades and decades. And he was one of Meisner's proteges who he brings along, Meisner would bring along to become teachers. So that's how I found this, this gentleman. And it's a technique that changes your life. And I, and, and I teach this at UB and I've been teaching at UB for 21 years now. And I tell kids this at the beginning of the semester, and it's a two semester class. And by, you know, week seven, eight, nine, um, and I go, how you doing? And they're, they're, they all grab their heads and they start shaking. <laughs> they're like, ah, I, I can't look at people the same way anymore because now they look at every single little behavior and the truth of what people say versus what they do versus what's in their behaviors. So their BS meter is really becoming sensitive. <laughs> and so they're going, I can't stand my, you know, whoever, the most significant other, my sister, blah, 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 because they're always full of garbage. Um, I said, okay, well, you're going to get through this phase and don't tell them any of this. This is a bad idea. You just keep this to yourself. Uh, and then, then they work through that phase. Well, I did all those things too. And um, it changes how you look at life and people. And it also, in addition to allowing me to have that kind of acting where I could just be in the moment with somebody, when I started to direct, I was, I was still in New York and, and started directing one acts for a, a little company I was with. And I was like, oh, I like this because the part of 
of acting that I love, the research and the development and finding the character, finding the moments between people, directors do the same thing, only you get to do it for five or six characters. So that that work, though, allowed me to be able to have a language with actors. And I didn't need to have the same like jargon that we used in, in the Meisner work, but I just could talk to somebody about a behavior, about an honesty, about this and that. And, you know, I've directed you a lot of times, and and I think we, you know, I think we had that same kind of like shortcut. We we you sure. and I could go back and forth, and we didn't have to pussyfoot around stuff. And it was just like, yeah, okay, you got what I would say. I think, and I truly believe that part of that uh, simplicity in, in communication is from that training I had. So that gentleman's name again was Greg Ziddle. He passed away. Uh, I want to say seven or eight years ago. He he was in like you know how all these books about the best acting teachers you know that these paperback books he was in those for many many years. So these were private lessons. This was not at a university, correct? No, this uh, this was just private. You know what? He taught privately, but it was a huge, huge commitment. It was three days a week for three hours each time. And you you teach it now at UB though. You teach right. the Meisner method. Is that did you in some way have to be? certified by him or or no you know i mean a lot of this a lot of us who teach acting it's just handed down and um, the same thing even even when i was teaching in high school a lot of things you you learned you know uh, on your own and then you were passing it on but go ahead i'm sorry yeah no and and that's exactly right uh it it is just a I took copious notes, so I, you know, I, he wouldn't let us take notes in class because he just wanted you to watch. But as soon as we got out, actually, all of us took notes. There's one last little story about my acting class. So it was very emotional and gut-wrenching, and sometimes we were going through some really weird emotional stuff in class. And, of course, he's dissecting you to the nth degree, and so you feel like you can't act and you're the worst person on the planet. Luckily, there was a bar right across the street. And so we would all leave class and go to the bar and the bartender after the first month saw us coming in would line up the shots and line up the beers and <laughs> the pitchers would come to the table. And so we'd eat burgers and French fries and drink, but we would, we were sitting there with pads going, what happened? What did, what did he say to you when you were doing that thing? And you could never remember what he said to you because you were so traumatized. Uh, but everyone else could remember all the horrible things that he said to you. The bartender knew what oh. After a couple of weeks, ten o'clock, those kids are coming over from across the street. Yeah, line up the shots, line up the beers. They're coming in order. Hey, Greg, listen so much. I I appreciate so much you coming on with me today and answering my one question, quickie. And I hope you're all staying safe and sound. And uh, as I said before, my best to your wife and and the whole family. And uh, you take care of yourself. And I hope to see you soon, my friend. Yeah, me too. In the theater, hopefully. Yeah, especially there. So long, buddy. All right, take care. Greg Natale, actor, director, friend, great friend. Over there at the Irish Classical Theater, doing some great work as he always has. And now, I've put this off as long as I can. I've teased you as long as I can. It's time for my interview with Joanne Folletta, the music director of the Buffalo Philharmonic Orchestra, here on RLTP's Off-Road with me, Pete Pomisano. Maestro, maestra. You know, either is okay, but I'm so used to Joanne, I wish you would use that, because that's more comfortable. I would be happy and honored to to use Joanne. Thank you. How are you this morning? Good, I was so much looking forward to this. Thank you for doing this. Well, I was so much looking forward to meeting you in person, because, you know... I'm sure you don't remember this, but we have a history. In 2005, I was Salieri, 
at the Irish Classical Theatre Company. Yes. In the first Amadeus. Of course, of course. How could I not make the connection now? I guess well, I knew your name, I knew you, but I didn't make that connection. Why would you? I'll tell you, it stuck in my mind because that was the night that you were there. And I still remember you were sitting right in the center of the west side in the first row. And I remember coming out and you standing up and I, I blew you a kiss because, of course, I knew who you were. And I was just so touched that you enjoyed that whole experience. And it's one of my fondest memories. Well, you know, Peter, I was mesmerized by that. And I, that, I think I wrote my only, only ever Willie fan letter to you because I was so overwhelmed. And I knew I could tell from how you, how you portrayed Salieri how profoundly you loved music and how much you knew about music, oh. which was... To me, I felt like I was in a live story, you know, hearing this from you as someone who lived through it, as a composer who lived through it. <laughs> I never forgot that. Well, thank you for reminding me. Oh, my gosh. I've been meaning to tell you this. As I said, I was hoping to meet you in person. But that is one of the, of course, my other fondest memory was listening to that music every night. And the moment when Salieri is going through the pages of Mozart's and, and he just I hear the music flowing around behind me, and then he faints, and all the papers fly everywhere. Yes, yes. I, I felt that every night, and it was those are my two fondest memories from that, that was, show. It was a truly great production, and yeah, I will never you. forget it either. It's, it's probably the highlight. Uh, I will never expect anything to be. And of course, recently, well, last, oh, before the pandemic hit, I, I went to see the BPO for their Mozart. Uh, Requiem, the yes. night that the young man, oh, I can't the remember. The young cellist, right. Uh, Drew Cohn. Drew Cohn, right. Drew Cohn. And I was so impressed by that. I was I was there that night because I wanted to witness that Mozart music again. And then the pandemic hit and everything. I know. <laughs> I went know. to hell. Although I do have to tell you that I've I've so much enjoyed the the sort of little mini concerts every Tuesday night because I'll be honest with you, there are things that I I never would have gone to see because number one, I was probably doing a show or something, right, or number right. two, I just wouldn't get up, I'd leave the house. Right. But the one with the violinist, Tessa. Uh, oh, Lars, wasn't she wonderful? Oh she my was God. I, yeah. And to be able to see them in person and hear their little spiel and, and last night or two nights ago, the harpist. Yeah. It, it's just. Oh, I, uh, I really wanted to talk to you, but I... well, that that means that means a lot to me because you know it. We we get, we are together, and that really helps us. But we never really know how far out it's going, or people are watching or not, or if they're bored with looking at their computer. So you're saying that means a lot to me. I am seeing things and and watching things that I never would have gotten out of the house to do before. This is one of the very very few good things about the pandemic is that I am able to see these things that I wouldn't have had the opportunity to see otherwise. I wouldn't have bothered. I wouldn't have bothered seeing a harpist, but oh my God, she was so good. I, I just wouldn't have gotten out of the house. So it, it was great. I've just enjoyed it thoroughly. Thank you. Thank you. That makes my day. <laughs> it's a real treat to see you here today. And I'm finished talking about me and our connection now. I really... Oh, that was the fun part. <laughs> I don't even know if I'm going to leave it in the podcast because you I've should. already... You should, you should. If I can make it sound like it's not too much blowing my own horn, 
maybe I will. Well, I would love it because that was a very <laughs> special connection that we have. I mean, my, my just by witnessing it. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. So I want to talk about everything about you that nobody knows from, I shouldn't say nobody knows, but I, I imagine they're not common knowledge. And, and months ago when we were first going to meet, I, I did all this research on you and my Lord, I had so many pages of information and so many questions about your start. You, you're from Queens originally? I grew up in Astoria, Queens, right, right. And so you attended school there and everything. I guess I wanted to go know everything about your family, your early family. What what was it like there in, in Queens in the early in Well, the early you know, my, my parents were both children of immigrants. They were first-generation Americans. And they grew up in, in Little Italy in, in New York, but they moved to Queens, you know, to raise their family. And mm -hmm. Uh, we had to, it was just the two of us, my sister and myself and my parents, although I had a, have a huge extended family of well, lots of aunts and uncles, you know, or, or had at that time, lots of aunts and uncles and tons of cousins and, and second cousins. And uh, it was beautiful, beautiful growing up in an Italian American family. It was just beautiful. I know and, it well. <laughs> you know, so, you know, the big dinners together and the celebrations yes. of everything from graduations to birthdays to christening. So, you know, just the wonderful sense of family. And, um, but, and Queens was a lovely place to grow up. It was, uh, it became really a center of Greek American community, which was Fabulous. I mean, the, the foods and the, the food and the restaurants and the pastry shops and, and just the presence of, of, of people like the Greek Americans who are so family oriented as well. It was beautiful. So I try and go back there once in a while just to remember growing up in that beautiful place. But And were you surrounded by music even then? Not really. Only that my parents loved music. In particular, my father loved music. So music was always on in the house. Everything from Strauss waltzes to Broadway to Italian songs. And all the, the wide gamut of everything. And um, he had always wanted to study music. But as a child of an immigrant family, that wasn't going to be possible. It wasn't an easy time for them. So he gave my sister and myself music lessons. And I remember remember on my seventh birthday, I had no idea what, what I was going to get for my birthday. So I opened up this box and it was a classical guitar and I was <laughs> shocked. I remember, I remember that feeling of shock. And my father said to me, we have a teacher going to come tomorrow and give you your first lesson. And that was the beginning of it, Peter. So yes, there was music in my house, but it really started with my father's gift to me of a guitar. And, and then Luann, my sister, taking piano lessons, and I took piano lessons, and we started to go to concerts all the time. And so music became kind of a focal point for us. What was your father's motivation? Had, he, had you somehow shown interest? Why did he just suddenly pull out a guitar for you and you know, well, piano for your sister? I think I think he realized that I like music. Listening to music got, was very appealing to me, and I, as a little child, loved these kind of music toys that that you'd get and playing on them. So he thought, well, maybe music is something that's interesting to her. And he never wanted me to be bored. He was always afraid I was going to be bored in school. So he felt <laughs> I have to find something for her. Well, he found somehow he knew he found exactly the right thing because I was a, as a child I was very shy and you know didn't talk to people easily. And maybe he felt this would be a way of expressing myself. And he was right. I mean, that, that guitar became, for me, a voice of me, you know. And 
I loved everything about it, Peter. I feel silly thinking about it now, how I loved how the fragrance of the wood had. I love that smell of the guitar and, and how the, the, the nylon strings felt under my fingers and everything about the guitar, even just playing the open strings over and over again before my teacher arrived. I thought it was fantastic. So <laughs> it was a gift that, that transformed my mind. And then you also moved on, moved on to mandolin. I, I also have a connection with this because even though in my Italian family, I had to start out with the accordion. I had a cousin who played accordion, and of course, we were always watching Dick Contino and so on, and the Lawrence Welk show. But uh, my, I had an uncle who played the guitar, and his brother played mandolin. So those were the first live concerts I saw were him and his brother playing with the two stringed instruments. So when I quickly gave up the accordion, because I was a bad boy, I didn't practice, and fell in love with the guitar, he lent me my first, his old Gibson, guitar to to mess around with and that's all I've ever done with it is mess around and you know I'm a rock and roller I'm a, yeah. I'm a hacker you know from from way back but, I, but it's been 50 years that I've been learning this so that's another connection that I feel like I have with you because then you moved on to mandolin and did you have teachers in the area or did you just pick up a lot of this music. was a wonderful greek american gentleman who came to teach me he played everything he seemed to play everything he played accordion he played mandolin he played piano so <laughs> and he also this is wonderful for me he also had this uh this very strong feeling that if you were learning an instrument you had to learn theory you had to learn ear training you had to learn what harmony meant so i i also he also gave me exercises in all of this theoretical things and for me it was a delightful game i loved it i loved it and and I'm so grateful to him because most teachers didn't do that. But since he was from a sort of an old world background, he wanted to be sure that I knew everything I could about music. So he opened the door, I think, for me, my teacher, to thinking about other things. And the first time I heard an orchestra, Peter, I was so overwhelmed by it. Overwhelmed. I mean, I love the guitar and I will always love the guitar and I will never give it up. But, but there was something about the combination of sounds, all of those people playing. You know, how a Beethoven symphony sounded to me with that sound coming through the hall, Carnegie Hall. We'd go to Carnegie Hall often. Sure. And uh, that was that was the beginning of the, another phase of my life. For me, it was the idea. I was in an accordion orchestra, if you can imagine. And the idea, that, and of course, I was bad. So I was on, you know, 15th accordion. And so my my music was, you know, play a note here, wait three measures, play a chord here, wait three measures. So you were in the band, right? That was fun. The first time I realized all these different people had different parts. It wasn't everybody playing the melody, which of course, you know, I was yeah, and yeah. what, what did I know? So your earliest influences, I guess, would be this Greek? This man, Mr. Kavadias. Yeah, Mr. Kavadias was, was a tremendous influence on me. But then, you know, going to concerts and starting to hear other people play just woke up this feeling of, I want to be somehow involved with an orchestra. It was strange to me, Peter, because I never thought, I want to play violin in an orchestra, I want to be the concertmaster, I want to play a double bass. I always thought about that position in the middle as someone who helped, someone who enabled people, someone who, who you know, sort of made all these things happen magically somehow as a little girl. And um, <laughs> that's what I always wanted. And since my parents were not musicians, they they didn't, they weren't aware that there weren't many women conducting. And that, that was a field that had not really opened up yet. So they didn't discourage me. I and mean, they were always encouraging. I'm not sure that they envisioned music as a professional life for me, but they, they wanted me to have this in my life. And 
they probably were like many parents would be even today, worried about a field in the arts for their children. Right. But I think when they realized it was it was something that I I, I couldn't imagine myself doing anything else, that they always supported me. My father had this, this very strong feeling that he wanted my sister and myself to be able to be independent. And uh, he grew up as, as he was the youngest child in a family of many sisters. And he always felt that maybe his sisters had had to get married because it was expected I see. and were not always as happy as he thought they should be. He adored his older sisters. I mean, they were like little moms to him. <laughs> so his, his goal was that Luann and I would be able to be independent, that we wouldn't have to rely on anyone else. And I think that was a, that was a good way of thinking about it, that we would have a professional life that, that we could live if we chose to live it without, without being married. And, uh, and I, I thought it was very open-minded for him, frankly, at that time. Oh, very much so, because, of course, I just assumed exactly the opposite of that. But I have nothing but girls in my family also, my daughter. And, and I felt exactly the same way as your father felt. Just as a quick aside, so you're Joanne and your sister is Luann. Did, had you followed the, not you, but had your parents followed the old, the old Italian tradition? Were you named after your father's mother and so on? Absolutely, absolutely. My father's mother was named Giuseppe, then Josephine. (laughs) And my mother said, well, I don't want to call her Josephine, which seemed like an old fashioned name at the time. Now it's I think it's very new and chic. But she said, let's call her Joanne. And that was a kind of newish name. And my father said, yes. And my grandmother on my mother's side was Louisa. And my mother said the same thing. Louisa's a little bit old-fashioned. Why don't we name her Luann? So we've been Joanne and Luann and, you know, sort of inseparable. I'm very close to my sister. So, but named after our grandmothers. Yeah. <laughs> How wonderfully progressive of your parents or your mother, <laughs> at least, to, to say that. And of your dad. To, okay, we can do that. We don't, we don't right. need Giuseppe. <laughs> right. <laughs> That's wonderful. So did you continue with music in any more formal fashion through like the high school years and so on? High school, no, because I went to a Catholic high school and it was really an academic high school in Manhattan, uh, but every other minute of my time was spent in music. And I had decided by that time I had to be a conductor. So I was buying uh, scores, music. I was buying books about, about composers, listening to records and then CDs constantly. So it, it was my own world of music in addition to my, my you know, my high school experience. So, uh, but when I was 18, then I entered a conservatory and it was yes. really all music. So this all leads back to when you went to the, uh, Carnegie Hall, when you saw orchestras for the first time, you were immediately focused in on that guy up there who's leading everybody. And you were immediately drawn to that. Yes. You know, and I, I don't know exactly why, because I didn't know exactly what he was doing, but he seemed to be helping them. He seemed to be necessary. He seemed to be guiding, but it, he gave them all the credit. This The conductor that I remember clearly was Leopold Stokowski, who conducted the American Symphony, often of played at Carnegie. Yes. And he was, you know, very, very beautiful and, and, and great showman on the podium. But it, it seemed to me that it was really all about the musicians. He was helping them. Uh, and certainly he couldn't play a piece like that by himself. He needed every one of those wonderful musicians. And it was the, also the, the idea that they were all different, men and women. He was a strong believer of having women in an orchestra, Stokowski. So men and women and all ages, all backgrounds, and all intently focused. I think that appealed to me, the kind of dedication of that team 
just like you felt in your band, that mm -hmm. we all play this together and something great happens. <laughs> but we need everybody else, right? We need everybody there. And I, one of the things I've always noticed about you, and especially this most recent with the Mozart concert uh, with Drew Cohn, I, you, all, you do exactly the same thing. You always acknowledge the musicians around you. There was, there was thunderous applause that night, in, as I'm sure there was every night, but you, you always acknowledge all of the musicians. You barely even nod your head to take your own personal bow. It's always about the musicians around you. But it, it really is. They make the music. They make the music. Well, it's like I'm sure in the theater world, you know, the director has the vision for yes, what's happening. Yes. But it's the, what really brings it to life are the individual talents of the actors. They bring that play to life. It's the same thing with the symphony. The musicians bring it to life. That's terrific. So now you go to Manus College. Manus College, right. It was in Manhattan and... Uh, that was just a, a fantastic experience for me to now be in a, in, a, in, in a situation where everyone is a musician and a serious musician. And we all study only music. I mean, not only playing it, but also, you know, the theory, the analysis of music, the history of music. It was like, it was really like being in a paradise. And, and I loved the four, four years I had there. And then I went to Juilliard and continued. At Manus, I studied both guitar and conducting. But at Juilliard, I focused on conducting only, orchestral conducting. Did you have to audition to get into uh, Juilliard, of course, but Manus? Yes, yeah, it was very serious auditions. And in fact, um, I told them when I entered, I had got, become, I was accepted as a guitar major. And I said to them, I'd like to study conducting as well. And they said, well, you know, and very kindly, they said, They're, that's an unusual situation for a woman and uh let's think about it a little bit why don't you audit all the conducting classes this year mm. and then see how you feel about it so it was wonderful I, I was doing all my guitar studies but i was also auditing all of the conducting classes and at the end of that year i said i i have to do this this is for me and and so they they gave me a chance to study formally and i was very grateful and then your focus at juilliard was principally on conducting Right. Juilliard didn't have a guitar program, so I focused only on orchestral conducting. And that was right for me at the time. I've been, I've been focused on guitar for since age seven, but conducting in an actually the practice of conducting, practicing it in front of an orchestra was still relatively new. So I knew I needed as much training as I could possibly get. And I'm very grateful to Juilliard also for, for believing that women could step on a podium and conduct. From Juilliard, you received the encouragement that, yes, women can and should do this. It, was that a focus of, would you say, of Juilliard? It was very important. The fact that Juilliard, that, which is still but was then very, a very traditional school and had, uh, had very little experience with women studying conducting, would say, we think it can happen. We think this is a time when maybe things are changing in our conservative world. It was very important, and I, I'm really very grateful because Julia then allowed me to be thought of in a, in a serious way uh, as a young conductor. And you had opportunities, I assume, at Juilliard to, to conduct and so on. But, th but then after you leave there, where is your first opportunity? Who's the first one who was progressive enough to say, let's give this chick a chance? Well, the first job actually happened while I was still a student, and it happened in Denver, Colorado, which is a place I'd never 
thought about really. I mean, I grew up in the Northeast and, you know, spent all my time between New York and New Jersey and, you know, maybe went as far as Connecticut. I don't know. But, <laughs> but um, uh, all of a sudden, this orchestra in Denver, Colorado, invited me to audition to be their music director. And they offered me the position and I spent 10 very happy years with them. So it was a place I, I hadn't expected to work, but the musicians were wonderful. Denver, Colorado, for many people who've been there, will agree with me, is one of the most beautiful places in the world. And I loved it. And that, then there you know, was a sort of a slow progression from Denver to, to Long Beach, California, to Milwaukee, Wisconsin, to Norfolk, Virginia, um, really many, to San Francisco for a while with the Women's Philharmonic. So all steps on the way, really, to Buffalo Philharmonic. Well, to go back to Colorado just for a second, how had they... How had they discovered you? How how did your name get into the mix for our next conductor here? Well, they they advertised the position and they asked for uh, applications. And I sent in an application with a little bit of a resume about myself, which was very limited. I was still a student. Right. But we had to send that and we had to send some recordings of pieces, performances we've done. And they invited a group of us, maybe it was six or seven people to come out and each spend a week with the orchestra. So I, I realize that now I was probably the, the least experienced person in that group. Why they selected me, I have no idea, but I was so glad. And, and I think we have a pretty good idea why they selected you. It was a great step for me. It was a great step first as a music director to have to plan programs and seasons and have to plan uh, rehearsal orders and everything and which artists to invite. So I was able to learn a great deal there. You had actually reached out to them. You you applied for the job. Right. Even, as a, even still as a college student, you said, I'm going to start looking around and you got the position. Who would you say would be your most significant influences on your career or, or your style, your your focus as a music director, as, as a conductor, who were you most influenced by? Well, by my two teachers that I spent a lot of time with, George Mester, who is uh, working in Mexico now, and mm -hmm. Sixten Erling, who's, who's passed away, but was the conductor of the Detroit Symphony. Those two men were amazing teachers. And neither of them had really taught a woman before, but they, they made no distinction. It was music, and it was uh, based upon your skill as a musician. But also, we had the opportunity in Juilliard to occasionally have a master class with Leonard Bernstein. Yes. And I have yes. to mention him, Peter, because... Oh, I want you to. You know, even though we didn't spend lots of time with him, he would come in and teach us once in a while in Juilliard, which was always a terrifying experience. <laughs> he would walk in the room. He was, well, he was, he was always famous, but he was at, maybe at the height of his fame. Then he was the music director of the New York Philharmonic and a great composer, great pianist, great teacher. Sure. He'd come in and uh, he would work with us with the orchestra and... Everyone wanted to see him. So it, it was not only us in our usual rehearsal room with our orchestra, the dancers who were studying at Juilliard, they would all pack into the room and the actors, we had an acting program there. All of a sudden they had to see this. Everyone, all the teachers came and it was like hundreds of people in our room watching Leonard Bernstein teach us how to conduct. And, sure, uh, He's, you have a celebrity. He was a total, all complete celebrity. When he walked in the room, it was like the room became electrified. <laughs> and uh, he was an amazing man. He was a very beautiful man, but he was a lot shorter than people know he was, you know, because he had this leonine head, very yes. handsome and very, very uh, sort of aristocratic. And he always came with his little cigarette holder smoking, <laughs> which wasn't allowed, but it didn't matter. I mean, no one would, would ever tell him to not do anything. 
But he was very kind to us. I remember that because uh, he must have sensed that we were nervous and very kind. And, and he made the, the point that I think was maybe the most important lesson I ever had is that it wasn't important exactly how you were beating your beats and it wasn't important how you were holding your baton and, and none of that was really important. What was important was the emotion and the music. What was the music saying to human beings? That was all what it was about. It wasn't about these little details that really in, in the long run meant nothing. And that taught us a great deal. And then he would conduct our orchestra and we'd see that in action. We would see that his love of the music he was conducting and his passion for it would elevate them. And all of a sudden these young players who had never played this piece before were able to play it because of something about the force of his belief in the music. It was amazing to see that. Oh, I can see that there was a tremendous influence on you. Just in, in seeing your own style, I, I can see it. And it must have been tremendously exciting to have. I mean, even I, who was not part of the classical world at all, I knew about Leonard Bernstein. I mean, I, who was playing Beatles rock and roll and so on, I knew that this was a celebrity. West Side Story and every other darn thing you could think of, it was... He was the man. He was. And so it must have been, it must have been overwhelming. And it was. <laughs> <laughs> Wonderful. Wonderful memories of that. So then after that, you became a wandering minstrel and you, you, you were a, a conductor at all of these different locations. What finally brought you to Buffalo? Well, it was a similar situation. The Buffalo Philharmonic was looking for a new music director. Max Valdez had just decided to, to leave and move on to something else. So they advertised and they invited me. Uh, they invited me actually to conduct a performance of Messiah, which I was thrilled about because I love that piece and I love working with choruses. And after that, they invited me again to come back and work with a larger orchestra. So uh, we got to know each other in that way. And when they selected me, that was really, that was really history in a way because they were taking a big risk in an orchestra with the kind of history that Buffalo Philharmonic has. You know, the, the legacy of music directors, oh. Joseph Cripps and William Steiner. Lucas Foss, Michael Tilson Thomas. Uh, yes, you, and amazing. All of amazing. those people. So that to invite a woman to be the music director was really sort of surprising and groundbreaking. And and I'm so glad. I mean, and it's been a fantastic 20, 20 year journey now with the Buffalo Philharmonic. Amazing. And so you've really sort of had little mini auditions along the way in, yeah. in coming in to conduct the, the uh, pieces that you mentioned. Right. Those were sort of mini auditions for you. They, they were, they were. And that's really the only way because it also has to exist a kind of chemistry between the conductor and the orchestra that feels comfortable. So you can't really send, you can't really be hired just on your on your resume. You need to come and work with people, yes. work with the community. And what struck me so strongly was not only that it was a truly great orchestra with their own sound and their own personality, which I loved, but the community loved them. And that was obvious. I mean, this is, even though Buffalo 20 years ago perhaps was not in the strongest financial right. situation, the community loved this orchestra. And that was obvious. And I thought, that's a good place to be. We're a community with around you. Well, you're coming into the, you know, this national landmark, the Kleinhans Music Hall. That's right. And I, I remember very well 20 years ago when they were having a lot of financial difficulties and there were a lot of renegotiations with the unions and everything and every other such thing. And now it's completely turned around, but for the pandemic and the situation going on now, the financial situation and the renown of the orchestra, I have to at least commend you for much of this because we have become through your recordings, through your touring, 
of the orchestra and so on. All of those things have made it so much more visible. The whole orchestra, not just yourself, but you, starting with you, have become these ambassadors all over the world for Buffalo. I have to say, I think I came at exactly the right time because Buffalo, the Buffalo Philharmonic Board had made a commitment to help the orchestra survive and to thrive. And Dan Hart came in shortly afterwards as executive director, who has been an astonishing person to lead us through everything. He's terrific. Through, you know, to success and through difficulties like the, the pandemic. He has been amazing. And at the time that I came in, we were offered a recording contract. I was called by Noxos, which is a big classical music company, saying, we'd like to have Buffalo on our roster of orchestras. Are you interested? I said, we, we are. You know, we, we do want to record. And he said, well, uh, Klaus told me the one thing is we're not going to record anything famous because we have everything. We've got Beethoven and Tchaikovsky and Dvorak. We don't want second copies. We want you to find music we don't know. So that's been a great, a great adventure for us. We found music, not, not really contemporary, but from late 19th, early 20th century and recorded pieces. And that, in a way, has enabled people all over the world to hear what Buffalo sounds like. One of my questions to you was, how do you choose recorded pieces? And you've sort of answered, they were not looking for all of the standards that had already been done and done and done and done. They wanted new variety and you helped provide that for them, it sounds like. They did, they did. And 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 it's been a very, a very uh, great adventure for us for, between the musicians and me because we're doing pieces that there's maybe no recording of it, uh, it's never been played or played in the past, no one has heard it. So we have had to come to figure out how can we make this shine? Well, how can we come to an interpretation together and make this a fantastic piece? And uh, we've done that over and over. And there have been Grammy Awards and all sorts of other recognition, if I'm if I'm correct in this. Yeah, yeah and that, that's really helped us. Again, go outside of Buffalo. People who hear us on these recordings may never come to Buffalo, but they know what the Buffalo Philharmonic sounds like. It documents who we are. I wanted to ask you also about your choice of music. Just in general, when you are putting together a season, I know... I've, I've often said to theater directors, I wouldn't want your job, the artistic director who has to choose a season. How do you choose your season? How do you make decisions from this vast wealth that is available to you? How, how do you make choices like that? Do you look at other cities that have done well or have tried different things and said, oh, you know, uh, Colorado just did this or San Francisco just did that? Or do you sit down and just brainstorm these things? Or, or do you have a board, a group of people that get together and talk about it? Well, it's, it's a very big part of my job, but it's a beautiful challenge because I'm dealing with, with wonderful pieces. I really put it together myself. I mean, the musicians have sometimes made recommendations and we, we try and fit those in. But the, my idea is to, of course, celebrate the great music of the past, you know, we have we are like a beautiful museum in a way with the treasures of Bach from Bach and Vivaldi up through 20th century, 21st century. So to mix that in as well, I love to think of it as a continuum. So my typical program has always something a little new on it or a little bit unusual with something that is a great treasure and a, and a great uh, traditional favorite. Do musicians, uh, for example, Tessa, Tessa Lark. I'm calling her by her first name like she's my best friend. Do, do That's musicians, okay. She would love that. <laughs> oh, she's, she was a doll. Do, do people lobby for pieces? Do they? Do musicians say, you know, I really 
haven't had an opportunity to do this, and I was wondering if you could fit this into your program. Does that ever happen? Well, it does in, in terms of our, our musicians. For instance, with, with Madeline, our harpist, yes. who really wanted to play the Handel Harp Concerto, and we fit it in. Uh, with Tessa, when we invite people from outside, we usually ask them, what would you like to play? Give us a few choices, because maybe we did something too recently. Tell us what you really want to play. And Tessa said I'd love to play the Piazzolla, the Four Seasons of Buenos Aires. Oh, that was and gorgeous. Did it. And it's, it's just an incredible piece. I mean, an emotional piece, this uh, uh, tango from Argentina. So, so it's, it's usually a kind of discussion with people. You know, what, what do you feel you'd like to do this time in Buffalo? And, and uh, we mix things up and, and we're, we're excited about everything we play. I have to say, we're very excited. She was so animated and so much fun. And I have to tell you though, I do miss, and I'm sure you, <laughs> I do miss hearing the applause at the end because she would finish this violent <laughs> and then it's true. sort of turn to her and there would be, there would be nothing. And I thought, oh, I, I'm clapping at home. <laughs> I'm clapping. Oh. Well, that's what we imagine. We're all about imagining that people like you, Peter, are listening to us and, and are filled with joy with this music because we, we don't have any audience at all. But, but there is some, some real magic anyway playing with each other. We, you know, for, for the months from March through September, we couldn't play together at all. So it was very emotional when we met for the first time in September. And, you know, it felt a bit strange in a way because we were all wearing masks, of course, and we had yes. stretched, stretched out our spacing. So we were, you know, six feet at least apart from each other. But the moment we started to play, uh, we began with a, a Bach violin concerto. All of a sudden that, that went away. That strangeness went away because we were playing music that we loved and we knew with people that we loved and we knew well. And so it's brought us back to life. It really has. I have to tell you also that the sound quality is spectacular. I spoke to Dan earlier in the pandemic about the situation and so on. And he said that, the, that you were making quite an investment in video and audio. And I, let me tell you that it is well worth the money. I do listen, as I think you recommend, not you personally, but the BPO recommends. I do listen on earphones and they are the stereo, the, the sound quality is is just terrific. It's not like being, it's like listening to a recording. If I wasn't watching all of these masked people and these people behind the plexiglass, uh, the horn players with their little, you, you know. You know, first of all, we have a magnificent sound engineer in Bernard Gottinger who works for us on all of our recordings in every way. He's a fantastic genius really at sound. But also we're playing in a magical hall. Klein Hans is so beautiful to play in. It's spacious, it's warming, it's inviting. Musicians love playing there and it's our home. We've played on it every day for now 80 plus years, I guess, <laughs> the orchestra. So that makes a big difference too. But you must have made quite an investment in sound equipment and video equipment. The product shows the production value that has been and frankly we never expected it to last this long but i'm glad we made that investment because it's kept us going and yes. kept us being able to produce these and even when we come back to the hall peter when we're finally able to welcome people in which we'll be so happy we know there will be some people 
that still are hesitant to come into a hall, even though we'll be very spaced very far apart. And so we're going to overlap that with continuing, continuing streamed concerts. Uh, so that for those people who don't feel safe coming into a hall until everyone is vaccinated, uh, we'll do both. And I think that that's, we, we owe that to the community that has taken care of us for all these decades. And I think that's something that you also have in common with local theaters in that I read an article in the New York Times a few weeks ago, and, and it's I've mentioned it to other artistic directors. This is going to be a permanent part of our future, I think. The ability to not just appear live, but there's always going to have to be, and you're positioned for it beautifully now, there's always going to have to be an online element. I think this is going to be a permanent part of your offering from now on. It is. And you know, there's something very beautiful about thinking of people sitting in their living room, maybe with a glass of wine or, or a cup of coffee, listening. Or I even imagine, I mean, sometimes when I can't sleep at night, I have a little insomnia once in a while, listening to a concert. You know, you can turn it on at midnight because these are available at any time. Right. So someone who, you know, is up at 11.30 saying, well, you know, maybe I'll listen to a little music. Oh, here's the BPO. And they can listen to the String Serenade. I listened to the Tessa Lark concert more than, at least more than three times. Yeah, And uh, just Because you can continue to listen to them. That's right. And another quick question, what else is involved in your role as music director? Choosing the music, of course, rehearsing with the orchestra. What other elements? I'm, I'm sure Dan takes care of much of, Dan Hart takes care of much of the, the technical aspects, behind the scenes things, but what else is involved in Joanne Folletta as the musical director of the Buffalo Philharmonic? Well, in a sense, it's the overall health, artistic health of the organization. The overall artistic health is my, my purview, and then Dan takes care of our overall structural and financial health. Uh, but we work together so closely. Some things that I do, for instance, I do on my own with musicians, like auditions, when we have places for new people. Oh, sure. That's a very big part of what we do. But Dan and I have to be on the same page about what's important, artistically, what's important first, because that we revolve around the musicians. The core of our orchestra are our musicians. I mean, they are, they're what we're about. And, and all of the people around them, myself included, are focused on letting that artistic vision shine in every way. And Dan is a, is a perfect leader from my perspective, too, because he's, he loves music. He's a bass player. He plays the, the, the double bass and also bass guitar. He's He's been a musician all his life. He loves music, he loves the musicians, and he knows that at the core, that's what we have, is our musicians, they are precious to us. And I'm, I'm not sure everybody knows this, but you are also, or have been in the past, simultaneously been working with other orchestras, the Virginia Symphony, the Jamaica Symphony Orchestra, Hawaii Symphony Orchestra, the Ulster Orchestra, are all of those things have all sort of gone by the wayside? Well, let's say they've been postponed. I mean, because my this has been the longest continuous time I've been in Buffalo, and I frankly have loved it, I have to say. Was, I was able to spend my first complete summer in Buffalo instead of going to festivals all over the country. And I've loved it, uh, but those, you know, it will, the world will come back to life, you know, and, and, and for me, guest conducting is very helpful because it helps me continue to develop as, as a musician, as a conductor, learning and li from listening to different musicians. And uh, we certainly too have plans to tour again. We had to, we had to postpone a tour to Florida. We like to do 
tours to Florida because there are so many Buffalo people who are now spending half the year or more in Florida. And we were going to go this winter, but we'll do that in the coming year. So, so there are, you know, there, we will come back to life, but right now we're focused on what we can give to this community and to the people outside who want to, to listen to us. Can you tell me why you find touring such an important function of the orchestra? It's very important for us because first of all, you know, the, the, the musicians say that, you know, we know our audience loves us and we love them back so dearly. But when we have to play for another audience, we have to make sure that we're just as good. You know, it's almost like we want to show, all right, can we, can we impress this audience? Can we do a good job? Can we represent Buffalo and Erie County in the highest possible way? And we also get to play in many different halls. And while they don't supplant Kleinhans, the only one that comes close is Carnegie, of course. But, <laughs> but when, we, when we play in other halls, we hear each other differently. All of a sudden, musicians are hearing the music in a certain, in a different perspective because they're hearing it in a different acoustic, which is very different. We learn from that. It's very important for us to tour and have those challenges so we go to the next step. When we went to Poland, it was probably one of the highlights of, of our professional lives. I mean, to make a week-long tour in Poland at the invitation of a very important Polish festival that invited us to come, because we had to represent our city and our region, and uh, it was so important to us, and we grew a great deal from that. It's funny, because I have a memory of Klein Hands from like 1972, and I was watching a rock and roll band, and I saw, and I one of the one of the rockers turned around and looked and said, where did you guys get a place like this? <laughs> because they were so impressed with Klein hands. It is such a jewel. And they couldn't believe that they were performing. I, it might have been Chicago. It might have been John Sebastian. I don't know. But they just looked around and said, this place is incredible. And, and, and we take, you know, we take it for granted now. It's a special place. And everyone has felt that. Even Rachmaninoff, who played really near the very opening of the hall, said what a beautiful hall it was. I mean, and he played all over the world. So we're very lucky. I mean, that was a, that was a, a generous gift from the Kleinhans family with help from the Works Progress Administration, who helped build that hall, too. And, and it was... It's, it's perfect. Mm -hmm. It's just a wonderful place. I'm sorry to keep you so long. I have just two more quick questions because I have to talk about the Joanne Folletta International Guitar Competition. But first, I want to ask you the the collaboration with the Irish Classical because you recently did, not recently, but in, in the recent past, Midsummer and of course Amadeus in, their, in the second iteration of it. Was that your idea? Was that, what was your intention there? It, it was my idea, but Dan is fully behind it too. We actually had worked on, in Virginia when we were working there together on like projects. For us, it's opening up on, into a new world. When we have actors on our stage, all of a sudden they're like our cousins, our artistic cousins. You know, the same the same kind of uh, aesthetics, but realized in very different ways. And we hear them speaking. We notice, but this is always so interesting to us with actors, how every night it's a little different. Yes. <laughs> and every night it has, it's even a little funnier than the night before, or someone is particularly, uh, you know, inspiring in a moment. We learn from that. I mean, but we realize how much we have in common, just different mediums that we're working in. So to do Bourgeois Gentilhomme with them and then to do uh, Midsummer Night's Dream and the Amadeus, 
is fabulous. And that's to be continued because we have lots of other plans we want to put in place with them. And, and uh, we, we have evolved, but more than that, I think we, we learn a lot from them. Now, of course, now knowing your background in the guitar and mandolin, now I see some, uh, you know, there's some logic behind this, but tell me about the development of the Joanne Folletta International Guitar Concerto Competition, which I'm sure will continue when things loosen up a little bit. What was the impetus for that? Well, you know, it actually started as sort of a combined brainstorm, I guess, from WNED, from Don Boswell, who plays the guitar, although he doesn't like to say that he does, but he plays the guitar <laughs> uh, and loves the guitar. And Joanne um, and Michael, uh, Michael Andreaccio and Joanne Castellani, who are fanta a fantastic duo here and great teachers and great advocates all over the world for, for our region and for guitar. We were talking about guitarists uh, not having opportunities to play with orchestra enough Don agreed, and he had he had a background uh, with the Van Cliburn Piano Competition, and so he said, well, what, "Wouldn't it be great if we could do a guitar, a classical guitar concerto competition, based upon the Van Cliburn in Texas?" Huh. So it came true, and and uh, <laughs> it was international. And we, frankly, Peter, we didn't know who would come, if anyone would come, and we received so many applications. And people came from all over the world. In fact, yes. in all these years, we've never had an American winner. We've had uh, we've had Chinese winners, Korean winners, uh, South American winners, Polish winners, Mexican winners. I mean, it's it's it, it, these people are incredible. It shows the 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 highest possible level of guitar playing, and they all come to Buffalo. And one of the personal things that makes me the happiest about this competition, aside from the extraordinary level of these players, is that many of them are coming to the United States for the first time and they see the USA first in Buffalo. And that makes me very proud because they all say, we can't imagine a warmer welcome. I mean, they're very well taken care of. We take them to see Niagara Falls. We, we treat them to, to all kinds of parties and, and sure. uh, special events for them. They can't imagine a better a better first visit to the U.S. And some of them come back second and third time because they love Buffalo so much. That makes me proud that we can we can show someone the United States through our city. Oh, it's 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 so exciting to have it here. And I'm not at all surprised that you get applications from all over the world. It must it must be so gratifying for you. And I. I don't want to keep you much longer. Are you permanently located here in Buffalo? Yeah, no, I live here in Buffalo. Yeah, that's my home. You have that's other family home. around, or are you? I mean, I see you. I see your Blue Cross Blue Shield <laughs> commercial. <laughs> <laughs> my my husband is here with me, and he loves Buffalo. He's lovely. We both grew up in New York City, and and we love Buffalo. We oh, want to stay. <laughs> but uh, my, my my most of my family is still in the New York area, so you know okay. well, we we go down, and we used to go down more often. Now we you know we're careful about about going down but to see them but this is a great place to live peter you know it's a great place i couldn't agree more my whole family's moved out of town but i'm not going anywhere <laughs> <laughs> good uh, for us <laughs> in, in conclusion do you have a long-term vision that you see for 10 years down the road or uh, you know people like you who are have so many different irons in the fire could you foresee something different down the road or or do you have a goal maybe 10 years down the road you know i don't and i've i've made that as a part of the way i think about life is to be ready for change and to to be flexible 
because I find that sometimes making goals, you would have missed wonderful opportunities, like my going to Denver. Mm -hmm. I wouldn't have thought of Denver because I didn't know, I didn't know that state or that city. It was the best step for me at that time in my life and a beautiful, beautiful 10 years. So I don't really make long-term goals. And especially now with this pandemic that has made us think in such a different way with our stream concerts and our you know different things that we're doing. Um, I think that we just keep going forward as artists and keep working on getting better and more vibrant and more communicative for our community. And that's that's really what I want to do. So that that's the long-term goal. <laughs> and the title of this podcast is Off-Road. So I'm going to ask you my off-road question, which is, if for some reason you hadn't gone into musical conducting and so on, where would you be now? What would you be doing? What what would be a second love? I'm sure it has to do with mentoring musicians or something like that. But what might else you be doing if you couldn't be doing this? Uh, you know, it's hard to imagine, but but I suppose I, I've had a lifelong love of writing and literature, maybe a career in writing. I don't know. But oh, uh, interesting. But uh, that might be the only thing. And uh, but I'm so glad it's music. <laughs> We all are. We're so glad to have you here. You've been such a tremendous ambassador for Buffalo. Everybody loves you. Everybody told me that, oh, when you talk to Joanne, you'll love talking to her. And I have. I've enjoyed every minute of it. Well, you've made this such a beautiful experience, Peter. Thank you. Well, I thank appreciate so much you're doing this. And so I thank you so much. Maestra, do, do we even use Maestra? No, we, Joanne is just fine. <laughs> no one really knows if it should be maestro or maestra because it doesn't really translate the same way in Well, Italian. the Italian in me just says, well, it's got to be an A because it's right. female. You know. <laughs> but Joanne Folletta, thank you so much for joining me here today. I, this has been an honor and a pleasure and everything I hoped it would be. So I hope you had a good time. I had a great time, Peter. Thank you. It was an honor to talk to you. Thank you. Bye-bye now. Yes, there's a ringing in my ears, and I don't even know what a Mandalorian is. I, the kid is cute, though. Oh, never mind. So I should have said, no, no, the honor is mine. Did I make a fool of myself when I talked to Joanne Folletta? Come on, you can be honest with me. The answer is yes, you made a fool of yourself. And we all knew I would. Everybody had money on it. They said, yeah, he's going to make a fool of himself. He'll be an idiot. And I was. But let me tell you, if you are not taking advantage of these virtual concerts from the BPO, just go to their website, bpo.org. If you're not taking advantage of these, they're 10 bucks. Of course, you can add more if you would like to contribute, if you would like to make a donation. But for 10 bucks, you can sit at home. The sound quality is excellent. Listen with headphones. It's stereo. It's beautiful. If you can project it onto your TV, their, their entire system of video and audio is top notch go to bpo.org and get yourself the holiday concert which i just watched the other night and i think there's another holiday concert coming up believe me you won't be sorry you heard it here first and you can uh, thank me later <laughs> but guess what i have even more excitement for you next episode next episode another holiday treat you're not going to believe this one. Joanne Folletta first. Two weeks from now, Stephen McKinley Henderson. Yeah, that's right. You heard it right. Stephen McKinley Henderson 
is going to be talking to me. I know, I can hardly believe it myself. First, he's nominated for a Tony Award. Then, he's off somewhere doing the new film adaptation of Dune. Then, he's going to be working with Halle Berry. But in the meantime, you're going to stop off and talk to Peter. And I'll see if I can get him to tell Halle Berry how much she loves me. So listen, remember to go to roadlesstraveledproductions.org, click on merchandise, and get yourself some RLTP stuff. For Christmas, even after Christmas, just for the fun of it, get some Road Less Traveled stuff, get some off-road stuff. It'll be cool. I just want to remind you one more time that if you can get takeout over the next couple of weeks, please do. Please help out our local restaurants. Please throw in a lot, if you can, for an extra tip at the end. Uh, We're trying to give you as many recommendations as we can. You have quite a few of them over the past few episodes, so patronize them. Patronize whatever favorite restaurant you have, and let's try to keep these people going because there is a light at the end of the tunnel, and I'm going to be getting a shot soon. I don't know when, but it's going to be coming, and we're all going to get shots, and we're all going to go back to normal, because you know what? I want to be Pete Pomisano, the actor, the director. I, I, I like being Pete Pomisano, the podcast host, but I really miss the theater. I really miss performing. And I'll bet you miss attending theaters and concerts and parties. So please, wear your mask, take care of yourself, See you in two weeks. Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas.